Before I start, actually, um, uh, while this is a week where a few of our pastors are absent, um, I would like to welcome a special guest to us this morning. I bumped into his wife the other day. Uh, Pastor Nate McLaurin is sitting right here. So if you didn't see them, they're joining us for worship this morning. For those of you who don't know, Pastor Nate was senior pastor here for many years and led us through many great transitions. We're still enjoying the fruit of your labors, man. It's good to see you. Yeah, um, and so if you, if, I'm not going to let him just sneak in here without uh, getting a few hugs. So, uh, so I, I hope you guys all bombard them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um. So two weeks ago, Mark set the stage for us in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, he, he introduced this passage that we're going to be in this, this week by the illustration of banana ball. If you were there, um, banana ball is like this other form of baseball that's supposed to, to be better. But anyway, he, he was saying that Paul was like introducing, um, the, that, that he had saw how these, these super apostles in Corinth had been boasting about themselves and he was not wanting to boast, but he was going to play banana ball. He was going to boast like they boast so as to confirm his apostolic ministry. And so, let's play banana ball. Turn with, 2 Corinthians, to, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, 16-33. So, instead of boasting like these super apostles, however, we see here this shocking catalog of suffering. Where Paul flips the boasting on its head. And recently, um, we've been going through a prayer meeting and book, like... Uh, book session uh, each Tuesday, every other Tuesday morning of the summer with a group of teens. And one of the books we've been going through is Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And there's just an awesome section in that book. I'd highly recommend it um, on the section of suffering, on uh, the, the worthiness of Christ and our suffering. And so I thought one way to prime the pump for us this morning to get us ready to read over Paul's catalog of suffering was to read a couple stories that I thought really stuck out to me from this chapter and let the nations be glad. So I'm going to read them for you. They're going to be up on the, uh, on the screen. But I think those, these will kind of prime the pump for us to, to talk about this, uh, this sub- subject of suffering. One day, Joseph, who is walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and to share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the same way that his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl into a water hole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered what the hostile reception he had received from the people he had known from his life. He decided that he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. 
After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. He pleaded. And again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had the chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before passing out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Second story that I found particularly moving. In our time, it is difficult to overstate the impact of martyrdom of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Yordan have, have had on generations of students. The word that appeared again and again in testimonies of those who heard the Hurani story was dedication. But more than often is realized, it was the strength of the wives of these men that made many of us feel a surge of a desire to be dedicated like that. Barbara Uderin, the wife of Roger, wrote in her diary the night of January 1956. Tonight the captain told us of, the finding, of his finding of four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore them. God gave me this verse two days ago, Psalm 48, 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. As I came face to face with the news of Raj's death, my heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his homecoming. Help me, Lord, to be both mummy and daddy. These stories strike something deep in our heart, don't they? Yet, it's clearly not about the ministry accolades of these individuals that were struck, right? Like, Joseph had just heard the gospel. He, it wasn't his proclamation that was so good that transformed the village. It was the fact that he came back the third time that the village came to Christ, that he was willing to suffer. Or, the example of those who were in the Huarani tribe. It wasn't that they had such great ministry success. They died the moment they hit the beach. But it was the worthiness of Christ to suffer that was so striking and so compelling to the many generations of missionaries that followed them. It's not about ministry accolades. Mark even talked about this last week. It's not about ministry accolades that... that determine that show primarily, even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. 
Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. What greater labors, far more imprisonments, with, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentile, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from other things. There's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for other churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the, government, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is God's word. All right, so before we jump into the passage, I'd like to provide a little context where we're at. This is Paul's actually third letter to the Corinthians. We have his first letter recorded in 1 Corinthians. There was Corinthians 1.5 that was written specifically for a different issue. We don't have that one. And now we are in 2 Corinthians now. Um, 2 Corinthians, the major topic of this book is about these super apostles, these men who are puffing themselves up. And these men came like most of the speakers of the day. They had a big rap sheet. They would come, and the speakers of those days, they, would, they were very trained and polished in their speaking. They, they were skilled orators that had pleasant speech. And these men came with sim, similar pleasant speech and were so pleasant in their speech that they had duped and fleeced the Corinthians to the point of abusive authoritarian leadership. And not only did they come with their nice speech, but they also came with this long list of qualifications. Like, people love us here. Um, we're, we've been, we receive this much money for what we do. Um, we have these many gifts. We've done all of these things. And this was a common pattern of boasting in the Greco-Roman world. This was, this was common. They were following this, and that was their credentials. That was their letter of recommendation. And so Paul looks at this boasting that they have, and he says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this letter that they have, all the ways that they boast, all the ways they've recommended themselves to the, the Corinthians, and I'm going to flip it on its head. I'm going to show that I have a rap sheet too, but a rap sheet of suffering. Because we want, again, to see that the value of the gospel is primarily shown, as, is, that the value of the gospel is most shown in suffering. Uh, it's not shown... Primarily in accolades, in ministry accolades. It's not, you cannot evaluate a ministry by its superficial outward appearance. Uh, and that by examining how people, suffer, how people suffer, you can evaluate their value in the gospel. So let's look at, let's look at um, first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11. So the first, the first point I want to make is that accolades do not show necessarily the value of the gospel. Paul is embarrassed to even be bragging the way he is. Did you notice that? That there's four times throughout the passage that he warned, he, he says, let no one think of me foolish in verse 16. In verse 17, 17 he says, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. 
In verse 21, he says, But whatever anyone dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I dare to, speak, I dare to boast of that. Verse 23, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Talking like a man, I am talking like a man-man with far greater labors. He is like, he can't even stand hardly to boast at all. It's like you can see his self-conscious pop, consciousness popping out in his writing. Paul is humiliated to speak this way because Christ never spoke this way, right? Though Christ was in his very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Many times before performing miracles, Christ would instruct those who he healed not to go and share, not, not to mention what he had done. When he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, he enters riding on a donkey. When he spends his last night on earth, what is he doing? He's washing the animal feces off his disciples' feet. Isaiah describes him as a silent lamb before the slaughter, before his accusers. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't talk about all the ways that he deserved to be worshipped instead of shamed. And then he died the most shameful death on the cross. Christ never exalted himself. And this is not the mind we're supposed to have among us. We are not supposed to be self-exalting people because Christ wasn't. And that's the absurdity of it. So Paul can hardly get these things on the page when he's writing them. He is incredibly self-conscious because this is not what Christ does. But there's another side of this coin, right? Paul isn't just calling himself foolish for boasting in these ways. The other side is he's implying how foolish these Corinthian super apostles are, right? Because he says he's boasting in the same way they are over and over again. Well, even look at 22 and 23. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. He's following this pattern of how they boasted. And so in calling himself foolish, he's really sharply calling out these super apostles for being foolish. And that goes par for the course with what he said. I mean, he did just call them servants of Satan. So he's, not clear, he's clearly not afraid to speak frankly about how devastatingly awful their ministry is. But there's all, it's not just a confrontation with the super apostles, you notice here. If you look in verse, verses 19 through 21... He's specifically confronting the Corinthians there. He says, For you gladly bear with fools, but that blow would have hit hard. He takes the words right out of their own mouth. These super apostles have been saying, Paul comes and he's weak in his speech. He's too weak. He's too weak to be a leader. That, and so they had begin to, begun to buy this, this lie that a, a leader had to come strong like these super apostles and not weak like Paul. And so Paul says, you, you think these guys are strong? Oh no, I'm far too weak to be like them. And that would have hit them, right? To, to see how they had been deceived and duped by what? How had they gotten so deceived? How had they become so lost that they would be totally taken advantage of, maybe even physically abused by this leadership? Because they had been so consumed with the external accolades of these men. They were so consumed with that. That they had been fleeced. So, the first point of application I want to give to us today is that we cannot qualify someone's ministry simply by its external appearance. Think about men we would have even trusted. We would have even probably read in a Sunday 
morning class or something like that. Joshua Harris is a, was a pastor at a Sovereign Grace church and has recently left the faith very publicly. We probably would have read his books. Ravi Zacharias, an, a famous apologist who, after his death, many accounts of his sexual scandals have come out. Mark Driscoll or Jason McDonald, who both had been leaders of prominent groups, orthodox groups, had been removed from their positions because of abuse of authority. It's not someone's external ministry that, that shows the value of the gospel. They had successful ministry, successful outward ministries. Or think about even how the culture accepts different pastors. The largest church in America is Andy Stanley's church, and he rejects the authority of God's word. The richest pastor in the world is Kenneth Copeland, and he's a blatant wolf in sheep's clothing. Most of the, bo- the Christian best-selling books out there are written by, by men who promote a prosperity gospel. So clearly, how people accept and how people respond to ministry, to, someone, to, to, to someone's proclamation, does not show that it has this valuable gospel And my warning to us all this morning, and I'll leave this general. If you judge a ministry based on external qualifications about how entertaining it is or how exciting it is, energetic it is, how, how you are leaving entertained or not, how someone puts something together. If, you, if, you're, if you're judging it based on just superficial qualifi- qualifications, there are men out there who are great at putting that together that are blatantly false teachers. And if you're putting high value on that, then you're setting yourself up to be, to be fleeced. We cannot evaluate the value of the gospel in ministry by superficial, external characteristics. But suffering, suffering is how Paul shows how he values Christ. It's like that parable Jesus tells. It's like the kingdom of God is like a treasure that's buried in a field. Right? And a man finds the treasure in the field. What does he do? He sells all that he has to go buy that field because he knows that there's something more precious there. See, what, we're, what we give up in this life shows how much more valuable we know is in that field, right? So Paul turns their boasting on its head and boasts in his suffering. First of all, he starts with this pedigree, this, this national heritage. They, they say, are they Hebrews? So am I. That was a, a ethnic distinction. What to say, they, were, they had both Hebrew parents. That was one of their qualifications they were giving. Are they an Israelite? So am I. This was, had to do with their religious practice. We know that Paul was a Pharisee. So he was definitely an Israelite as well. Are they descendants of Abraham? Are they trusting in the Torah and all the promises of that? Yeah, Paul did that too. Um, so they would boast and they would, they would puff themselves up with these, these qualifications. We see that Paul views his qualifications in quite a different light. If you look at Philippians 3, I'll have it up here. Paul says this. He says, Though I, f- I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh 
also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, blameless. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul views this external, racial, Jewish heritage as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Now remember here, Paul had plenty of reasons to boast. He had planted churches. He's written several books of the Bible. He had given tons of sermons. Like Paul, Paul had seen countless people come to know Christ. But Paul doesn't boast the same way they do. He boasts in his sufferings. So let's look at some of these sufferings. Let's examine them. Um, he was imprisoned. At this point in his ministry, we know he was imprisoned one time. Uh, that his imprisonment, he had an imprisonment in Philippi, but he had been imprisoned even more than that because we know he'll be imprisoned in Rome later in his ministry. But that hadn't even happened by the time he's writing Second Corinthians. Clement says that Paul, he was Clement is a leader in the early church, said that Paul was arrested seven times, but it could be more or less. We don't know. But Paul had been imprisoned. A lot of times. He had countless beatings. And when he says countless beatings, the implication here is that these beatings are beyond almost what he can express by writing them down. That they're inexpressibly, he had inexpressible beatings. So let's look at some of these, these specific beatings. And some of the times that, like he says, he came near to death. Um, the first one is five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. Now, if you don't understand what that is, that was a Jewish way of punishing people um, front, and then they would be rotated and receive 26 final lashes to the back. And John Piper says it like this, in Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, lest we pass over this too quickly without having the breath knocked out of us, consider what it meant to receive 40 lashes lest one. It meant that he was stripped and tied to some kind of stake so that he could not run or fall. Then a person trained in flogging would take a whip, maybe with or without shards in the leather, and lash Paul's body 39 times. Halfway through, or perhaps earlier, the skin would begin to break and tear. By the end, parts of Paul's back would be like jelly. The lacerations would not be clean, as with a razor blade. The skin would be torn and shredded so that the healing would be slow and perhaps complicated by infection. They knew nothing of sterilization in those days and had no antiseptics. It would take perhaps months before his garments could hang on his back without pain. Now, with that in view, consider that this happened a second time, on the same back, opening all the scars. He healed more slowly the second time. Then consider that some months later it happened a third time. Imagine what his back must have looked like. Then it happened again, and finally a fifth time. And this was just one of Paul's sufferings. Three times he was beaten with rods. That was almost the, the Gentile equivalent of this lashing. That there, the magistrates would carry this bundle of rods under their arms, and uh, they couldn't do this to a Roman citizen, but Paul was a Roman citizen and was still received this three times, so there was incredible shame. But... He was stripped naked and tied. 
and then these rods would be passed out to the mar- those, those citizens around, and then they would take turns beating Paul with these rods. Once he was stoned, this occurred in Lystra when the Jews stirred up the crowd. They had intended it as an execution, clearly because they dragged him out of the city and leave him for dead, but he had received blows to the head and the body so severe that those who dragged him out thought he was dead. And while these are really painful sufferings, there's a shame that goes along with these sufferings that likely Paul would have been even, even elevating to the same level as all the pain he, he experienced because these men were boasting in their honor these men were boasting in their accolades. And Paul says, even to the people I would try to minister to, I, I, was, I was hated by them so severely that I received the 40 lashes minus one, that I received beating with rods, even as a Roman citizen, that the Jews tried to execute me. That was exactly the opposite of these super apostles. Then he goes on and he, he talks about his frequent journeys. Well, he talks about being shipwrecked. There was once he was shipwrecked, he was shipwrecked three times at this point, and that's before his last shipwreck that we read about in the book of Acts. So we know he was shipwrecked several times. And one time he was shipwrecked so badly that he was adrift for a night and a day, 24 hours. If he ever feared for his life, I'm sure that's one of the moments he did. Not only that, but in all of his journeys, he received all sort of suffering. But I think as he goes through this list of the frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, I think his point in that, in that section is to show that there was nowhere he could rest. There was, there was no end to any of this for him that he had nowhere to call home. He was constantly on the road. And that when he was on the road, it wasn't like he could just leave a certain spot. If he, no matter who he was with. Was he with Gentiles? Nope, they hated him. Then he could go to the Jews maybe. Nope, they hated him. Oh, maybe he'll be at, in, at comfort in the churches. Nope, there's false brothers. He's constantly got to be on guard. Well, at least he could leave the city then and hit the road. Nope, danger on the road. Well, maybe he could take off to the sea. Nope, danger at sea. Anywhere he went, he was constantly at danger, never at rest. Not only that, he was in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. That's Paul's way of saying how poor he was. That Paul, we know that Paul wouldn't take money uh, for his missionary service. He says that in 1 Corinthians 9, that he would rather die than give up that ground for boasting. That because he didn't want to provide any obstacle in the way of the gospel. So what Paul had to do was he would either work on his missions at, during the day and then his tent making at night. Or he would work at his tent making during the day and be up all night as a missionary. He was constantly in sleepless nights and often that did not cut it. So often he did not have food. He did not have water. He did not have clothes. He did not have a place to stay because he, he suffered financially. And above all of these other sufferings, he says, apart from these things, there is a daily pressure on me for my anxiety from all the churches. Think about all of the things that were happening in all of the churches all across the world that Paul was bearing with. And Paul was bearing with them going through persecution or with church discipline issues or with their financial needs 
Or Paul was dealing with the false teachers, which we can see concerned Paul more than anything else. If you don't believe me, read 2 Corinthians. Read the book of Galatians. Read, uh, let's read Acts 20 and his address to the Ephesian elders. Paul was so concerned and constantly burdened that there would be these, these wolves in sheep's clothing coming into the churches. And he was, had oversight and anxiety for all the churches across the world. And he takes this moment even here to show his pastoral heart. He says, who is weak? Clearly, he's shown himself to be weak. He's humiliated himself and said that he's been ashamed at all corners. He says, and am I not weak? Paul doesn't set himself up as this perfect, impeccable model, but he shows himself as someone who's received shame and rejection. And he can sympathize with the weak. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? He says, that he's carrying that burden in his heart constantly, that the, the churches would not be fleeced by these false teachers. He, that word indignant is like burning up inside. So he ends in this interesting account of his, his suffering in verses 30 through 33, about being lowered down the wall at Damascus. And what an interesting story to end on, that he would highlight this one specifically. But I think it makes sense if you think about the way he walked in of his age. He was loved by the Jews. He was an upstanding Roman citizen. And then as he leaves, he's being lowered in a basket down the wall. In those days, they would say something like, the first soldier up the wall was the one with the most honor. Now Paul is again showing his dishonor. And you can just imagine, as he's going through how his life has changed from entering the city to leaving it, that, that line from Philippians 3.8 was probably going for, through his mind, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He realized at that moment his life was completely different. Everything about his old life was gone. And this was his new life. And that it was worthy because he wanted to gain Christ. And Paul suffered a lot. But it was for the purpose of God's glory. God appoints suffering for us many different ways, just like he appointed it for Paul. I don't, I don't want us just to look at all of Paul's suffering and say, wow, that's impressive. But let's, look at, let's think about why God would give that to, to, to Paul and why he might give that to us. What is the reason for our suffering? Uh, John Piper, again, let the nations be glad, gives six different uh, excellent points that, that he says are reasons God appoints suffering for his servants. Suffering deepens faith. He quotes 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Even now, as he goes through his catalog of suffering, he doesn't boast about his own strength. But clearly, he shows his weakness because he wants to show Christ's work in him as supreme. Second point, suffering makes your cup increase. For this slight, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this slight and momentary affliction is prepared for us 
the weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are, are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The analogy that Piper gives here is one of a cup being thrown into the ocean. That as, as a cup is thrown into the ocean, it's going to be full with water, but there are some larger cups and there are some smaller cups. And what suffering does is it increases your cup. It prepares you greater for this weight of glory, of, of worshiping Christ in eternity, of being fully satisfied in our eternal blessing with Him. Suffering draws us to that hope and that glory. Third, suffering is the price of making others bold. He quotes Philippians 1, 4, uh, 1.14 that says, Most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That, that suffering shows that, that it, it, it emboldens others to see that Christ is worthy. And I think for us, as an example, when we suffer... I think specifically as an example for our children, what an example that is. That they can look at mom and dad and say, wow, they are so bold, or they're so, they're, they're so, they're so willing to suffer for Christ, they value him so much that I too want to live a life like that. And that brings us to our next point, that suffering fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He says this in Colossians 1.24, he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is is the church. So this is not to say that something was lacking in Christ's atoning sacrifice, that his sufferings weren't enough, enough to cover us. No, actually it's exemplifying how worthy Christ is to suffer for. And that in providing examples of suffering for those who haven't heard and don't know of how Christ has suffered for them, it can, it can fill up what is lacking or provide an example, a tangible example of Christ's love for them. Suffering enforces the missionary command to go. In Acts 1.8, we see that the command to go is given, that he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 8.1, we then see that they spread out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And Acts 11.19, we see that they spread out of Judea and Samaria, the, the surrounding areas, to the, to the nations. Why? Because suffering had made it uncomfortable for them where they were at. That it enforces that we, because we aren't comfortable, we aren't at home here, suffering wakens us to the fact that this is not our true home. And that the life we live, now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That we are crucified with Christ. Finally, the supremacy of Christ is manifest in suffering. This is from the end of Paul's actual boasting here in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my suffering so that the power of Christ may, be, may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Did Paul suffer so much? Why should we desire to suffer so much? Because it shows the supremacy of Christ. That is a form of worship that is more powerful than 
singing and then praying that it is a, a, a tangible example of us selling our field, of letting go of things that, are worthy, that have worth in this life and holding on to something that is much more worthwhile. Yet, in our culture, suffering is rare. Probably the most rare as it is globally. There are not many examples of suffering in American culture. So, shouldn't we long to suffer? Shouldn't, after reading this and seeing how Christ is exalted in our suffering, shouldn't we long to, to glorify Christ and worship Him through our suffering? If you do, I, wanna, I just want to help us think through a, a few, few ways that Paul suffers that maybe we can follow in his suffering to worship Christ and to exalt Him as supreme. He talks about physical suffering. Now, I know this probably doesn't happen. I know there's not many of us who will face beatings or martyrdom for the sake of Christ, but that is happening. That's happening globally in the world. this This physical suffering is happening. And maybe God would have it for you to take place in that. Maybe you can suffer shamefully that for that you would be willing to suffer dishonor, that to be disliked, lowered in other people's eyes for the sole reason, not just because people don't like you, but because of how you preach Christ and repentance from sin, that you would be willing to take on that shame. Maybe in your plans. Maybe, like Paul suffered in all of his journeys, we can cancel our plans that, and reject a life of self-satisfaction. And make plans instead that elevate Christ and His glory. Live, showing and how we plan and prioritize different things in our own lives. Maybe with our finances. Providing a way for the gospel to have no obstacle. Not out of our excess, but out of our need. Like he's already talked about here in 2 Corinthians. That we can suffer financially to elevate Christ's glory. Or by our care for the church, right? Paul lifts that up as, an ex- uh, as a great example of his suffering, that we could bear one another's burdens, that we could not consider our own interests, but the interests of, one, uh, of each other to exemplify the love of Christ in our suffering and our bearing with one another in the church. These are simple ways that we can think to follow in Christ's example of suffering, but I recognize here that there's there's likely many in the room that don't know Christ and can think, why would I give up my life? Why would I be like Paul and give up everything in my life and be lowered down in that basket? Why would I want my life to lose all the things that I find precious? Because Christ suffered for you. See, we're all going to suffer. Both a Christian and and the unbeliever. We are all going to suffer, but the, the, the sobering reality is that those who are apart from Christ are going to suffer eternally in the hell. And that their suffering is far greater than the suffering that any Christian on earth faces. We get eternity of joy, of pleasure with Christ. But If it were not for what Christ did for us, we would all have eternity of suffering as his enemies in front of us. But Christ, in one moment, absorbed an eternity's worth of wrath that was meant for us. 
because of how he loved us. And if you don't believe that this morning, if I would call you to examine how you would choose to suffer. Because he is worthy. His treasure is greater. It's, it's worthy to sell all you have to buy that field and dig up that treasure. Like Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would use us as examples of suffering in a culture that knows little of suffering. Um, that it would be a potent example of how valuable Christ is to your church, uh, of his love for the world. Would we worship you well and glorify you well and how we pursue you at the risk of all else in life. In your name, amen.